Welcome to this episode of Kendall County Connections Podcast. I'm your host, Aubrey Walker. I work with the San Antonio Council on Alcohol and Drug Awareness, or CICADA. I'm the Coalition Coordinator for Kendall County. The purpose of this podcast is to educate, promote awareness of resources for Kendall County, and to connect people. I have lived in Kendall County most of my life, and I have a passion for this county. I hope you find this podcast helpful, and thank you for listening. Today, we're going to talk with Landry Weatherston Yarbrough. I think I said that right. Uh, She's a licensed professional counselor. She's the clinical director with Eating Recovery Center in San Antonio. Thank you so much for coming um, and joining us today. Um, How are you doing? Doing okay. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm super honored to be invited. Yes, of course. Um, So for this February episode, um, the last full week of February is Eating Disorder Awareness Week. And this is something that I have been passionate about since I was in college. Um, My internship, that was one of my um, projects that I did was to kind of create awareness. And, um, but, you know, honestly, it's something that um, is just we need to create awareness and we need to reduce stigma. And so I'm so excited that Landry is here today so that we can talk about this and and just learn more about eating disorders. So first question, um, this is a nice little icebreaker. Uh, What has been your most enjoyable job so far and how old were you? Again, if it's the most recent job, you don't have to tell us the age. you know, I, I would say that it's my current job. I've been really fortunate to be with Eating Recovery Center for um, about nine years now. Um, and so I have done a lot of different roles within um, the organization and so have been doing my current role for like, um, gosh, I guess four, almost four years now. Um, and I think one of the things that I really love about it is that I get to keep learning and I learn something new all the time. Um, I think once you think you've got it all figured out or you know it all, like that's where you get in trouble. Um, so I, I appreciate my, my job because it keeps me humble. You know, it, it reminds me that we're still learning so much about the field of eating disorders and it's so important to stay up on the research and, you know, stay current with, with what the field is doing. So why are you passionate about this? You know, I think, um, I have had experiences in my life, you know, people I know have been impacted by eating disorders and it always kind of was this very mysterious, um, thing, right. And you're like, gosh, you know, I, I, I want to understand, but I don't understand. And I think feeling really helpless, um, Mm -hmm. as you see people you care about struggle with the illness, um, and so I, I like to solve problems. Uh, it's kind of how my brain works. And so um, I, I went to school to become a counselor. Um, and I had a wonderful professor who told me, you've got to find a niche, you know, mm-hmm. find something that you can really devote yourself to really become, you know, an expert in do really, really well instead of doing mm-hmm a little bit of everything, you know, do one thing and do it really well. Um, and so I really took that to heart and just kind of like followed the trail where it led me and was lucky Mm -hmm. enough to, you know, get hired at an eating disorder treatment center, um, after I graduated and, you know, kind of that's where it all started. Wow. That's wonderful. Nine years. That's, that's amazing. (laughs) It's flown by. I like kind of can't believe it myself. I'm sure, man. Um, and, and it's such rewarding work too. I'm sure, you know, you, you can go home and you feel happy with your day and just that, you know, you know, that you've made a difference in somebody's life. Yeah. I mean, you know, so for me, like I work, um, primarily in the partial hospital level of care. Mm -hmm. Um, so our patients are with us seven days a week, pretty much all day long. Um, And so it's a really intensive level of care. Our patients are really struggling with their eating disorders. Um, But I think you, there's also such a cool opportunity to see huge amounts of growth and change in very short periods of time. Um, So it's exciting. 
um, work mm -hmm. to be doing. And it, you know, I certainly find a lot of, of meaning in it. Um, and also, you know, it just is so, um, it's such an honor to be with people during such a difficult time in their life and to be with families, you know, probably on the worst day of their life or one of the worst days of their life. Um, and to be able to kind of help them start finding a path forward, um, you know, into recovery, into a life that's worth living. Right. That's wonderful. So, um, you kind of spoke on this a little bit, um, but when did you get involved and why is this important for the community to understand, to learn about? Yeah, I mean, so really, I mean, for myself, you know, my involvement really started um, when I started working in the field um, at an eating disorder treatment center. And I think, you know, just as I've kind of talked to people over the years since then, um, most mental health professionals, most helping professionals are in the same kind of boat when it comes to eating disorders, um, in the sense that like, we really don't learn about it in school. Um, it's not really on the curriculum in most graduate programs in a substantial way or a meaningful way, in my opinion. Um, mm -hmm. you know, it might get reviewed like for one hour during one class and like, that's kind of it. And so I think a lot of times, you know, we as therapists and dietitians and medical doctors, like leave our training programs with the impression that eating disorders are not super common, that we're not really going to come across them very often in our practices. Um, and so it's, it's like a kind of a false sense of security almost, right. um, because eating disorders are quite widespread. Um, the estimate is that about one in 10 people will experience an eating disorder in their lifetime in the United wow. States. Um, it's more common than Alzheimer's actually wow. in terms of diagnoses. Um, but you know, if you think about the last time that you saw a commercial for Alzheimer's disease or an article mm -hmm. or somebody just talking about a loved one's experience, um, mm -hmm. it probably was a lot more recently then you heard something similar for an eating disorder. And so I think for me, what I'm really passionate about is trying to help dismantle some of the stigma mm -hmm. that exists around eating disorders, because not only are they a mental health condition, which is, you know, we're fighting stigma around all of those different types of things. Um, but I think then you have eating disorders that have like this really like an extra layer of misunderstanding, um, of stereotype that gets in the way of not only people recognizing an eating disorder, you know, as a clinician, as a doctor, but also for the individual who's struggling, being able to recognize it within themselves. Um, and so I think that the stigma piece and starting to kind of you know, share accurate information, demystify um, some of that stuff, give people the, you know, just, just accurate statistics and red flags and all of those kinds of things is, is really critical um, in my opinion, because eating disorders are illnesses that people can recover from. Full mm -hmm. recovery is possible. It's not something that has to be really like managed like a chronic condition. Um, and I think when people don't know that they have an eating disorder or they're not getting access to treatment or they're not getting diagnosed appropriately, then they're not able to really take full advantage of the opportunities that they have to be able to move into recovery. Okay. There are a couple of things that I wanted to touch on that were great takeaways for me. Um, so for all of our listeners, um, I am not very well educated on this. So I am learning as you guys are learning. Um, so the one thing was the statistic about one in 10, uh, I mean, wow, I didn't even, I, I did not know that I knew it was more prevalent than what, you know, what we thought. I think when I say we, I mean, you know, society as a whole, it, mm -hmm. you know, it's not something that we quite realize that is happening more than it is. And then the whole commercial <clears throat> idea about al Alzheimer's, like, yeah, I see commercials all the time about Alzheimer's, but I don't even know, I don't know for sure, but I don't think that I've seen a commercial about eating disorders. I mean, not off the top of my head, but I can tell you for sure. <laughs> I have watched a commercial about Alzheimer's. So it's amazing that you 
put it into that perspective. It's really eye-opening in that, in that aspect. And the other thing was, it's huge to make sure that we all understand that this is a mental illness. And, and the second part is that recovery is possible. And mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm getting chills right now because, mm-hmm. because that's, it's, it's, it, it, it shows hope, you know, it's like, it's okay, but we can get the help. You know, people can get the help that they need. We can, you know, help people um, recover. And, and that, I love that piece of hope that, that you brought, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's okay that there's people that have this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, being able to identify that you have it. Um, and then, you know, get, you know, hopefully like hooked up with the right type of treatment and be able to start thinking about, okay, so if this is my diagnosis, what does that mean in terms of goals for me that I need to work on? Um, I think that's so critical, um, in people being able to like make steps forward. And so, um, I just, just decided on this question as you're talking. So, um, it's going to be a little bit of a surprise, but um, so when it comes to treatment and all that, I'm, I'm, I'm going to assume that it's not like it's one size fits all, right? I mean, it's totally patient to patient, what works for each person, right? It really is. Um, you know, I mean, there's just because you have somebody who has bulimia, let's mm-hmm. say, it doesn't mean that you really know anything about that person other than mm-hmm. that they're engaging in certain behaviors at a certain Mm -hmm. frequency, or they're having certain like emotional or internal Mm -hmm. experiences. Um, but they can be totally different from Mm -hmm. the person sitting next to them who has the same diagnosis. Um, so it's important to, to, you know, I think to stay, um, aware that just because we know somebody's diagnosis doesn't mean that we know everything about them. Um, it doesn't mean that we automatically know, you know, what they need or what's going to work best for them or any of that kind of stuff. So, um, I think eating recovery center overall does a really good job of trying to approach people as individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the ways we do that is through our level of care system. Okay. So, um, as you know, one of the real benefits of being, um, a treatment center organization that is national. Um, we have treatment centers kind of across the country, um, is that we have the ability to have a variety of levels of care. Um, you know, so we have people all the way from an acute kind of ICU, um, level. We have inpatient residential partial hospital treatment, intensive outpatient treatment, Um, And so depending on the person's level of severity, medical complications, need for support, we can do a really good job of matching them with the type Mm -hmm. of treatment that is going to be really effective for them. Um, So I think that is hugely important and something that Eating Recovery Center, you know, works really hard to do and does really Mm -hmm. well. Um, Because if you get somebody in the wrong level of care, right? So For example, if you have somebody who is seeing their therapist once a week on a purely outpatient basis, Mm -hmm. um, they have an eating disorder and, um, maybe they feel like they've been going to treatment and it's just not getting better, or they are, excuse me, they're having, Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're not seeing a decrease in their symptoms. Um, it feels like every day is groundhog day. Like it's not getting any easier. A lot of times people think, well, you know, something must be wrong with me. Maybe I just can't get better. Maybe I'm not meant to get better, right? Maybe this is just something I'm going to have forever. Maybe this is pointless. Maybe I should stop treatment, right? And you can follow, you know, the rabbit trail down that way. But I think that when you really look at somebody like that, probably what's happening is they're just not at the right level of care. Mm -hmm. And if they were to step up into a higher level of care, they would be able to get the traction, um, make the changes because they're, they're getting their needs met. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think that to keep people hopeful to have recovery happen as quickly as possible, which is really what bears the research bears out is that good outcomes in eating disorder treatment happen as quickly as possible. So there's a real 
I think, motivator there to get people into the right level of care for treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's a really, really important piece of all of this. Yes. Um, so we're going to kind of switch gears here a little bit. Sure. Um, and I just wanted to know how has COVID impacted your work? And, and it can be both positive and negative. Yeah. I mean, I, I yeah, both. Yes, definitely. <laughs> um, yeah. I think probably we're all, you know, kind of in that same boat together. Um, that, you know, I think some of obviously the challenges of COVID is that when you have people in person for treatment, um, you have to think about infection control and how are we going to make sure that people have access to care um, and that we're not, you know, exposing them to, um, you know, this virus. Um, And so I think that Eating Recovery Center has taken that really seriously and has done such a good job of continuing to offer in-person care um, for so many of our patients since, you know, last March. Um, So it's been like really um, impressive to me to see kind of how we've pivoted quickly and changed and adapted and all of that good stuff um, to be able to offer in-person treatment to a good majority of our patients. I think, you know, that another piece of that is Um, we've also, um, since the pandemic started, we transitioned all of our IOP patients, our intensive outpatient program patients, um, to virtual treatment. Mm -hmm. Um, so IOP is the lowest level of care that eating recovery center provides. So it's, you know, typically like three hours a day, three days a week. Um, and those are people who for the most part are really appropriate to receive virtual treatment where some of our patients at higher levels of care, you know, they need the face-to-face mm-hmm. um, monitoring and medical stuff and all of those kinds of things. But to see the increase in access to treatment that has been mm-hmm. kind of like a secondary payoff of the virtual oh, wow. programming has been so cool. Um, that's been a real silver lining of COVID, you know, because if you think about Texas, um, just as a state, you know, if somebody lived in Amarillo or El Paso or um, Brownsville, you know, we don't have facilities in those cities. And so those people would either not be able to access treatment with us, or they would have to, you know, move and stay in a hotel or an apartment or, you know, something and like totally um, kind of uproot their life. To, to be in treatment. Um, and now with virtual, they're actually, you know, able to do it from home um, and still receive excellent care. Right. Um, we've done research on our virtual programming and patients mm-hmm. feel connected to each other. They feel mm-hmm. connected to their staff and they have just as good of outcomes in virtual treatment as they do in in-person treatment in IOP. So that part of it has been really, really cool. That's amazing. You know, that's one thing I think that, you know, I mean, as much as much as I think we all get like Zoom fatigue at some point um, to be able to have that opportunity still, like you were saying, like all over Texas, I know, like for for me, you know, to be able to, you know, I've been able to go to meetings in, you know, different states, even just from my home and then go to another meeting, you know, with people here in Texas or, you know, mm-hmm. somewhere in the area and you don't have to do all that travel and you're still able to meet people and, and we're still able to like, you know, connect and, and feel like we are connected because as, as human beings, we very much, you know, thrive on be, being connected with other people. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, especially somebody who's, you know, seeking treatment, you know, mm-hmm. that's very, I'm, I, I'm assuming, you know, it's very important to feel connected. Absolutely. I mean, you're, you're, totally right. I think a lot of people who enter treatment for an eating disorder, it might be the first time in their life that they've been in an environment where they can sit, you know, across from somebody or look at somebody Mm -hmm. on the screen and say like, I get it. I've been there. I know what that feels like. You're not alone. Um, and that's so powerful. (laughs) I know it does me too a little bit. Like it's so powerful because Mm -hmm. eating disorders are illnesses that thrive in isolation. They thrive in shame and secrecy. 
And so being able to not just have, you know, your, your family, your family of choice, your, your friends, your community around you, but to have a group of people that you're on a healing journey with, um, you know, who are kind of walking the path with you, I think can't, you know, the value of that can't be understated. Yes, absolutely. And then, and, you know, to touch on that a little bit, cause you were talking about, you know, having, you're still having your family, you know, while, you know, and sort of like you're saying in Amarillo, Brownsville, El Paso, you know, all over the state of Texas, you know, if those people would have to come, you know, to San Antonio to seek the treatment, you know, they don't have their support system at home then, you know, so then, mm-hmm. and I, th- I, you know, I think, um, you know, that's so important too. I mean, yes, they need to be able to be around people who can understand, but also, I mean, it's so important to have family and such in, in a tough time like that. I, you know, my mm-hmm. opinion. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think families, you know, one of the things I'm really glad about, um, mm-hmm. is that the eating disorder field has come a long way in terms of how we think about families. So Mm -hmm. for a long time, you know, we were like, oh, you know, families are the problem. We've Mm got to, you know, get the person out of their family. We'll treat them and then we'll send them back and everything's going to be fine. Um, And that didn't work. And so as time went on, you know, we realized like, okay, we haven't been utilizing the power and the care and the support that these families can provide. Um, families don't cause eating disorders. You know, we can't say like you have an eating disorder because this person in your family has one. Sure. There's a genetic component. Sure. There's like a social learning component, but it's never just one thing. It's always a perfect storm. And so when we can get the family involved in the person's treatment, we can give them the information that they need to support their loved one's recovery we're actually doing more for that person um, who has the eating disorder than if we had totally excluded the family mm-hmm. um, because the family has them forever. You know, the family yeah. <laughs> is going to have them in 10 years from now and we're not. Um, and so I think it behooves us to educate the family members so that they can advocate for their loved one's recovery going forward. That's awesome. Okay, so for our listeners, we're doing things a little bit differently because this is, um, again, an awareness kind of um, episode. And so now we're going to switch gears. These are, you know, these have been some of my normal questions that I've been asking, but we're going to switch gears a little bit and I'm going to get Landry's kind of like 101 on eating disorders. So, you know, red flags, what, what can we look for? Um, What do we do? How do we handle it? And this, you know, again, you know, like, let's, let's say, you know, for myself or for a family member or for a friend, you know, just kind of the spectrum of what is, what do we need to know about eating disorders, which I know is probably a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. How long do you have? (laughs) Right. Exactly. Um, But, you know, just, you know, as, as I guess, as, you know, much as, as you, you know, kind of deem that, you know, we need to know. Yeah. Um, And again, I really, you know, I'm, I'm so appreciative of having a chance to talk about this topic, because I think it's something that there is so much misinformation about. So um, what I always like people to do when I'm kind of talking to them about eating disorder basics is like, you know, close your eyes or imagine in your head, if you can't close your eyes, um, you know, imagine an image of a person who has an eating disorder. So what comes to mind? What does that person look like? A female. Mm -hmm. Female. Anything about that person? To me, they're always like, I guess the people that I've known, Mm -hmm. they've actually been like, they've looked healthy. They don't look, you know, overweight. Mm -hmm. They don't look, you know, skeleton, I guess, you know, underweight or anything like that. You know, they Mm -hmm. look healthy. Mm-hmm. Well, and I appreciate you saying that because that's actually a more accurate mental image of a okay. person who has an eating disorder than probably like the average <laughs> individual experiences. Most people I ask that question to yeah. say, well, you know, I thought of a, um, like a young, like young woman or like adolescent female. Mm-hmm. Um, she's thin, she's underweight. Uh, she's probably white. She's probably Mm -hmm. middle-class, upper middle-class period, end of sentence. Mm 
right? Mm -hmm. And so sure, there are people who fit that description who have eating disorders. However, that is not the totality of the population of individuals who have eating disorders. It's actually a pretty small fraction. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you think about eating disorders overall, only about um, 6% of people who have eating disorders are underweight. Wow. And that's like my current favorite statistic to share with people because it (laughs) is like so mind boggling. Um, So only 6% of people who have eating disorders are underweight, which means that if my mental image, my stereotype of an eating disordered individual um, is someone who is underweight, then I'm actually probably very likely to miss, exclude, disregard, mm-hmm. overlook, whatever you want to call it, the 94% of people who aren't. Right. So what you said, Aubrey, you know, there's mm-hmm. people who, um, you know, they, to, to the naked eye, they look healthy, mm-hmm. right? They're average weighted. There's not anything that you can, you know, you're not saying, yeah, like, I don't like you, you just look like a person, mm-hmm. right? And I don't see that you have an eating disorder. Um, that is the majority of people. Um, there's people who are living in larger bodies who have eating disorders. Um, you know, your weight status does not guarantee or exclude you from having an eating disorder, right? Right. Like weight is a feature of the illness since it has to do with food and body image, but it doesn't mean that somebody who's at a higher weight cannot have an eating disorder. It doesn't mean that everybody who's at a lower weight has one. Um, And so we have to start kind of relying less on our eyeballs to tell us who is a a person of concern, Um, especially if we're, you know, um, a, a helping provider, like somebody who is on the front lines in terms of assessing, screening, diagnosing for these types of these types of illnesses. Um, so I think that's probably the biggest and most important thing is that it doesn't matter what you look like. Um, it really has, you know, very little to do with what you weigh. Um, the majority of people who have eating disorders are not underweight. And so, um, that's kind of like the first, the first brick, you know, that we're dismantling (laughs) out of this wall. Um, you can expand that picture as well, not just in terms of a person's weight or body size, but also when you think about a person's gender, mm-hmm. a person's sexual orientation, a person's um, race, none of their socioeconomic status, none of those things um, guarantee that you will or will not have an eating disorder. It is an equal opportunity illness. However, the trouble with that is that people who aren't the stereotype, right? People who aren't the underweight, young, white, female, um, those people are really in a difficult situation because not only are they not seeing themselves represented in the stories of people who are sharing their own eating disorder histories, their own recovery journeys, Um, even in like the media, there's, I mean, movies are coming out all the time with like eating disorder protagonists in them. Um, And and somebody who doesn't fit the stereotype of somebody who has an eating disorder is not necessarily going to see themselves in those types of representation. And so what happens is self-invalidation. That person says, well, I don't look like that. So I can't possibly have an eating disorder, right? Or I'm, you know, my body isn't X, Y, Z. And so I can't have an eating disorder or I don't have that behavior. So Mm -hmm. I can't have an eating disorder. And it's, that is way too black and white, unfortunately. (laughs) Yeah. Um, it's so much more complex than that. And so it's so important for people to understand that, um, just because a person doesn't look quote unquote, like they have an eating disorder doesn't mean that they don't, 
Um, we still have to ask questions. We still have to share concerns when we have them about people. Um, I think one of the really sad things to me when we're talking about this kind of stereotype and how it impacts people um, who have eating disorders that it, it can really be a barrier to treatment. Um, so not only does the person themselves maybe not take their own eating disorder seriously, mm-hmm. but it also can extend to the people on their treatment team. So they might go to a doctor, you know, and maybe they say like, Hey, I think I have an eating disorder or I'm binging and purging every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, and the doctor themselves may be a victim of stereotyping with regard to who they're screening for an eating disorder. And they might say, no, you can't have an eating disorder because you're not underweight or no, you can't have an eating disorder because you're a male. Um, that's another big piece of this, right. Is eating disorders are thought of as women's issues. Mm -hmm. Um, that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, there is, you know, the ratio is about one to three. So for every one man with an eating disorder, there's about three women. Um, So the gap is a lot smaller than we used to think that it was. But because there's this stigma and this stereotype that an eating disorder is something that only happens to females, Mm -hmm. um, men who have eating disorders maybe hold it in. They don't talk about it they're embarrassed because like, what does this mean that I have an eating disorder? Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm a guy, um, or, you know, their providers aren't diagnosing them because Mm -hmm. they don't even think about it because, you know, it's, you know, this is a male patient. So eating disorder might not even cross that person's mind. And that's like a totally unconscious bias. Right. Yeah. So, um, and one thing I wanted to we wanted to talk about a little bit is just the spectrum of eating disorders a little bit, because, um, you know, I think we all just kind of, you know, we just think about anorexia and bulimia. And, you know, I think that's pretty much what everybody thinks is just, you know, these are the two eating disorders. This is it. And, and, um, like I shared with you earlier, Leandria, I had watched a Ted talk a, a year or two ago, and it was talking about how there's a spectrum. And so I, you know, I'm sure that there's a lot and you can't get into all of them, but can you kind of give us a little better understanding of how it's, it's not just the two, it's more Mm -hmm. of a spectrum. Yeah, for sure. Um, And I think you're right. I think Mm -hmm. the, you know, the default kind of assumption is it's either anorexia or bulimia. Um, There is definitely a spectrum, but a lot of people don't know it because again, Mm -hmm. the research is like kind of coming out all the time. And so when you think about kind of like the timeline of eating disorder development or diagnosis, I guess, Mm -hmm. um, anorexia was like the first eating disorder that was identified. Um, and then bulimia followed it, you know, and that was kind of like in the eighties. Um, and then we didn't have really like a new, standalone eating disorder diagnosis until 2013. Okay. Um, and so that's when binge eating disorder became a standalone diagnosis. Okay. That's also when, um, ARFID or avoidant restrictive food intake disorder became a standalone diagnosis. Um, and I can talk a little bit about what those, you know, the differences between those, but just kind of when you think about how recently that was, you know, eight years ago. Um, There's a lot of people who, you know, have never heard of, there's a lot of heard of them before. And there's a lot of providers who have never heard about them before. So you can't diagnose something that you don't know about. Right. (laughs) I mean, that's a huge barrier in and of itself. Um, You know, so when you think about kind of the spectrum of eating disorders, um, one of the most important things I think to point out is that eating disorders are more always more alike than they are different. Okay. Um, so I think really my conception is that at the core of eating disorders is an attempt to kind of cope emotionally with the feelings that a person's having. Um, so the eating disorder is like how, how they, um, manage their feelings. 
um, is through those behaviors that they turn down the volume on their emotions. They help them avoid or numb unpleasant or painful emotions or memories. Um, and all of the eating disorders have that in common. So I think it's, it's important to understand that like they all kind of are radiating out from this central point. Um, another thing, you know, about eating disorders is that, um, they can shift over time. And so a person, you know, especially if someone hasn't been able to have treatment for their eating disorder, um, and they're really just trying to kind of struggle through it on their own. Um, mm-hmm. An eating disorder can change from anorexia to bulimia to binge eating disorder over the course of a person's struggle. Um, and so it's, it is a, a truly a spectrum, you know, it's not like a, they're not these like neat, tidy little right. boxes where you're either one or the other, or, you know, it, there it's, it's really a whole lot more gray. Mm-hmm. Um, every eating disorder can really engage in every behavior pretty much. Um, you know, so there are people who have anorexia who engage in self-induced vomiting. There's Mm. people who have binge eating disorder who engage in restriction. Um, and so we, again, have to kind of break out of those stereotypes that if you have a certain diagnosis, you do certain things. Um, because again, it's a whole lot more gray than those, than, than that kind of like neat and tidy distinction. So, um, again, just random question as, um, as you're talking, do you have, have you seen or noticed, I guess, any correlation with eating disorders and adverse childhood experiences? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, definitely. Because as you're, as you're going about this, you know, talking about, you know, trying to cope and, you know, numb yourselves, that's, you know, I immediately think of ACEs Mm -hmm. and, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I know like big things that we talk, you know, when we learn about ACEs, you know, they talk about high blood pressure, diabetes, you know, things like that, that can happen long-term, but, you know, I was just sitting here thinking like, could an eating disorder come from a higher ACE score? So. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, at least just anecdotally, I think there okay. it's, it's common, um, for patients to have, you know, higher ACEs scores. Mm-hmm. Um, but not always, you know, it's, again, it's, it's not a one size fits all kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. There is some pretty solid research, um, that, uh, you know, trauma in general mm-hmm. is a common, factor in people who have eating disorders that they've had some sort of a traumatic experience. Mm -hmm. Um, and particularly, um, it's commonly childhood sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's not for everyone. Right. So again, you know, there's always exceptions kind of, there's lots of paths up the mountain, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's commonalities, there are things that we can you know, explore or look at that, like maybe this increased your vulnerability factor. Um, you know, maybe this is something that had some sort of like an epigenetic effect in your family. Um, because we do see a strong genetic component in eating disorders, you know, they're 50 to 80% genetically based. Wow. Um, so there's a huge heritability factor in the illness itself. Um, so it's, it's very much like a multifactorial um, diagnosis. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, and then just some red flags, what can, what are some things, and I I know it can be probably different depending on what the person's diagnosis would be. And I know you were saying, you know, it, it's very, some of them are very similar and it can, you know, kind of go from one thing to another. Um, but what are some red flags? What are some things that, you know, those of us who are listening, what can we take away and be kind of on the lookout for? Mm -hmm. I think this is really important because, um, you know, an eating disorder is not like having a sprained ankle, you know, so it's, um, it's something that is, is quite painful to the person, but it also has that effect of helping them cope with their emotions. And so they're not, they don't always present as totally motivated to seek help for the illness. Um, so, you know, if you sprained your ankle, you would be totally wanting to go to the doctor and like get some support for that. 
Um, but people who have eating disorders don't, um, always have the ability to reach out for support, um, or feel strongly that they have a problem or that they need treatment. Um, and so I think that can be really difficult for loved ones, um, or support people in that person's community because they might have shared a concern and the person who has the eating disorder kind of, you know, pushes back on it. So it's like, Nope, I'm good. Don't worry about me. Um, so my first kind of piece of advice would be like, don't give up. Um, if you're concerned about your loved one, if you're concerned about somebody in your life, um, you know, don't just kind of say like, well, I tried once, you know, we're just going to let it be. Um, it really, you really have to kind of stick with it in a lot of cases. Um, typical red flags for people who have eating disorders is that they're spending the majority of their day kind of thinking about, um, or focusing on or doing things in relation to their food, um, intake or their body, um, image or experience. Um, so that might be kind of like uh, meal planning for the week really intensely and like counting out your macros. Um, it could be um, somebody who is exercising compulsively for hours a day. Um, it could be someone who just as they go through their day, they have such negative self-talk about their body and how they look that it's like totally overwhelming and they can't really even focus on anything else. Um, and so some of the kind of red flags maybe are more obvious than others. And again, we can't trust our eyeballs to tell us, you know, and so I think if you are picking up on something, maybe isn't right here, maybe this person is struggling with an eating disorder. Um, Mm -hmm. what's important is to really talk to the person, Mm -hmm. um, to be compassionate, to be non-judgmental, but to be direct. Um, and to say, Hey, I'm worried about you because I saw this, or you said that or whatever it is. And mm-hmm. I think that you may have an eating disorder and I want to mm-hmm. get you help. And I want to talk to you about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's like such a hard conversation to have, but it is like the, the best way is just to like, go straight to the, the heart of it, um, and really just have the hard questions. Um, I think other things that you can see in people who have, uh, like for red flags for potential eating disorders is Mm -hmm. if there's someone who's kind of like yo-yo dieting or having Mm -hmm. a lot of like weight shifts. Um, Mm -hmm. so maybe they gain and lose weight regularly on like a cyclical kind of a, uh, routine, Mm -hmm. um, that could be a red flag potentially. Um, I mean, you know, certainly negative body image in general. So anytime someone's talking negatively about their body or saying like, oh my gosh, you know, I hate this part of my body, or I don't like the way this looks, or I need to go to the gym and work off that, whatever I just ate. Um, you know, those are all red flags. And just because someone says one of those things doesn't mean that they automatically have an eating disorder, right? <laughs> um, but it's something to, to take note of, right? Because it could be um, you know, one of the kind of puzzle pieces that as it fits together, it really shows, you know, the bigger picture. Um, I think the other thing that, uh, we need to look for, especially in children is when children are not following their growth curves, um, you know, in terms of their height and weight growth. Um, so if they've fallen off their growth curves, that should always be investigated. Mm-hmm. um, by a doctor or a professional, um, mm-hmm. because that is a, a huge red flag specifically in children. So, and, and speaking of, you know, is there like, a like an age in particular that you would say would be like, like kind of like, I don't know how to say it, but like onset, like what's the normal, uh, or I guess average age of somebody who I guess starts out with an eating disorder behavior. I, I don't know how to, do you understand? Yeah, I don't know how yeah. to ask the question, but yeah, totally. No, I totally okay. get what you're saying. Okay. Um, I think we see it, you know, both in males and females, we see mm-hmm. it kind of like around onset of puberty a okay. lot of the time. Um, so kind of middle school aged is common for mm-hmm. a lot of people. Okay. Um, 
the downside of that is that mm-hmm. it's, you know, very much thought of, I think largely like, oh, it's just a phase. They're going to grow out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that person may struggle for 10 years um, before they get treatment, right? Which just mm-hmm. gives the eating disorder that much more time to kind of hardwire into the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I will say that there's never like a cutoff point. Um, for someone to develop an eating disorder. And especially when you look at like um, eating disorders, like ARFID, that's one of the ones I mentioned earlier, which really, it essentially presents as like really severe picky eating, um, where maybe the person only has like two or three or four foods that they can accept. um, And their nutritional status is really compromised as a result. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that can onset after the person has maybe choked on something and had to have the Heimlich maneuver and it was traumatic for them, or they had a stomach bug and they threw up and it was horrible and they're scared of getting sick again. Um, you know, and so that can happen. I mean, any eating disorder can start at any point in a person's life, but if a person experiences a traumatic, um, event, um, you can have these things onset because they're trying to cope with how they feel. Right. And so, I mean, even in the last 10 years, there's been a surge in people noticing and diagnosing like first occurrence eating disorders in postmenopausal women, Mm -hmm. um, you know, which was not a population that people were really even thinking about, um, before that. So, um, again, totally the playing field is totally level. Wow. I didn't even think about like, you know, postmenopausal women or men even you know in that age yeah. range you know um obviously men are postmenopausal, but but in that age range I didn't you know it's it, it was something that it was just like you know for me you know people that I've met in college who've had an eating disorder um you know I'm, I think of you know young adults you know youth teenagers you know so it, to go past that into you know adulthood um you know it, to me, it, that, that's eye-opening. I didn't think, you know, that. So I'm, I'm really thankful that you're here to kind of debunk some of these myths, kind of like you were saying, and, and get us to understand a little bit more about eating disorders. And, and it, it's not what we think it is. You know, there's yeah. so much more to it. So yeah. um, last, is there anything else that you would like to share? Um, let me think. I mean, I think we covered a lot of really good ground. Um, you know, I I think I, what I would like to just say is just to Mm -hmm. reinforce that people can make full recoveries from these illnesses. Um, and that the time to reach out for help is the moment you have a concern. Um, because the research shows that when we can intervene quickly and get Mm -hmm. that person on the path to recovery, that they have better outcomes that way. Mm -hmm. Um, and The dialectic is that it's never too late for somebody to recover. Even if they've had an eating disorder for 30 years, they can Mm -hmm. still recover. Um, And so I would encourage people not to give up on their loved ones, not to give up on themselves. Um, And if they don't have a support team um, or, you know, a community of people that they can work on their recovery with um, to reach out for support, um, to try to get connected um, and get, get engaged in, you know, their recovery journey. Yes. So, um, lastly, how can somebody get in contact with, um, I get with the organization, not necessarily just you, but to get, you know, some, you know, information, some resources to get, you know, help for themselves or a family member. Yeah. Um, so they can go to our website, which is eatingrecoverycenter.com. Um, that is, it has so many good resources on, I probably don't even know all the things that are on there, but, um, not only is there, um, you know, like blog posts that you can read, there's pages about each eating disorder diagnosis. There's like a self quiz you can take. Um, there's, uh, um, like access to scheduling an assessment which for us are always free of charge. Um, If someone wants to find out if they do meet criteria for an eating disorder, Mm -hmm. but we also have free community support groups. Um, They're running virtually. 
Um, and so if someone is interested in finding a community of people yeah. who are going through what they're going through, they can go to our website and um, navigate to the support group section and request to join one of our groups. All right. And I, one question that I it just dawned on me um, for the any of the treatment um, part of it, do you all accept insurance? Is it private pay? Yeah, we do. Like? We accept, okay. yeah, we accept all commercial insurances. Okay. Um, we unfortunately don't work with Medicaid or Medicare, but there are some treatment centers that do. Okay. Um, and we are not currently working with TRICARE, okay. um, but we do accept private pay as well, if that's something that um, somebody would like to pursue. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. I really appreciate yeah, you being totally. on here with me. And I just, I really look forward to being able to release this and, and share the, I say great news, but I mean, it's just, to me, it's, it gives me hope. Like I said before, it gives me hope. And um, I'm just so happy that we can have this platform to share information about, you know, things that we don't understand and mm -hmm. we can shed some light on, you know, eating disorders and, and again, mental illness, cause that's, that's what it is. Yeah. Uh, likewise, totally. I'm <laughs> super grateful for being invited and yes. um, I can't wait to hear it when it comes yes. out. And yeah, I, I appreciate you using your platform for good. Oh, yes, of course. So we will add the website into the show notes Okay. And um, yeah, thank you so much. All right, everybody, we're going to do things a little bit differently from here on out. Before we close out this episode, I wanted to give the opportunity to the listeners to email questions you might have from this episode. Um, also, if you have another topic you would like to learn about from the person we interviewed this month, or if you have a suggestion for a future episode, please reach out through email. You can email me at coalition at cicada.org. That's C-O-A-L-I-T-I-O-N at S-A-C-A-D-A dot O-R-G. Thank you for tuning in to this month's episode of Kendall County Connections podcast. If you are interested in joining the coalition or being on an episode of the podcast, you can call 210-225-4741. That's 210-225-4741 or email coalition at cicada.org. That's C-O-A-L-I-T-I-O-N at S-A-C-A-D-A dot O-R-G. Or check us out on Facebook, search for Kendall County Community Coalition or facebook.com slash Kendall County Community Coalition. Thank you. We'll see you next time and stay safe.